0: We are in
1: 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and last week we left off with verse 11, so go ahead and turn there. And today we're going to be really ambitious. We're actually going to go from verse 12 to verse 22. And last week we talked about suffering. And if anybody could tell us about suffering, it would be uh, Paul, wouldn't it? We said this, and it is true. For the Christian, suffering is not just a possibility, it's a fact. We are literally brought into this life, and in this life there is suffering. There is pleasure and there is pain. There are things that would look like they take life from us and distract us. But God put us here. Even after we have received His life, He left us here for the specific purpose to allow these things, the things that would inflict upon us suffering pain, difficulty, to allow these things to draw us into a place where there is no suffering, draw us into a place where there is no shaking of who we are, there is no, no insecurity, no doubt, no fear. That place is in our union with Christ. He literally put us in a world that was going to continually provoke us to faith. He's provoking us to faith that we might grow in who we are. And you know what? You're complete in Christ. So at this point, it's just a matter of him teaching you to expand in the truth of who you are. And I talked about this at Bible study, but we do that because he allows things into our life that provoke it. I use the illustration of Hadassah teaching her youngest to walk. And what she does is she literally puts him in a place and stands him up where he has absolutely no sense of security, no sense of balance. He's left there doing this and gets off from him as though she were going to not leave him, but just get out of, get out of his reach and say, come on, come on. And it's natural for him to walk, but he doesn't know it. He was made to walk, but he doesn't get it. And you know, if, if he were to have the intellectual capacity at that point, he would have said, how could you just leave me here? I have no sense of security. I don't know how I could be put into this position. Look, everything around me is unstable. I am unstable. How could you do this to me? And God says, come to me. Well, by faith, we take each step. And you know what? Pretty soon you say, I can walk. I can walk. You know what? You could always walk, but you hadn't yet learned that you could walk. You can always rise above whatever this world puts in your path, but you don't know it yet. You could always love an enemy, but you didn't know it till you had one. We're in this life in order to expand in the truth of who we are. And every one of us want to endure life and treat it as though it's something that God has just got to get us through, when in reality God calls the challenges of life literally a blessing because it brings us into the truth of all that He has given us through His life in us. All He's made us to be. Paul's been suffering verbal attacks from the people at the Corinthian church. He's been dealing with accusations and slander from some false apostles in the Corinthian fellowship. And they sought to discredit Paul in order to replace him in the lives of the Corinthians. And and so they attacked him in his character. They attacked his character. They attacked his integrity. They attacked his teaching. And apparently they found some sympathetic ears in the church. Go figure. And what was described as a mutiny began to gain momentum. You know, uh, dissension is probably one of the most effective tools that the enemy uses to Divide the body of Christ, and you know it's an interesting thing. It, it it works very, very strategically. He uses a strategically placed question or an observation, innuendo or suggestion, begins to create a fissure in the hearts of the people, and then it just grows from gossip to outright accusation. And most of us who've been at church a while have seen this happen. It is the work of the enemy. Now, Paul was no stranger to criticism. I mean, this guy was no wilting violet. He knew what it was like to be criticized, but he wasn't really concerned with his reputation. He was concerned with the distortion of truth regarding the gospel. He was concerned with the division in the body. He was grieved over the work of the enemy in the people's lives. That's what he was most grieved about. And these people attacked his behavior, his motives, and his doctrines. So Paul writes them, and we mentioned this last time, he writes a very severe letter to them. And it's a lost letter. It's not one that is included in, in the canon of Scripture. But Paul makes reference to it. And apparently the Corinthians were convicted by the Holy Spirit as a result of this letter. And they begin to move away from the dissenters and embrace Paul and his message again. Now, at this point, Paul begins to write 2 Corinthians, and he knows that the people who had rejected him before, the people who had followed the false apostles, are still in the church, though they've had a little change of heart, they're still there, and so there is still a potential for division, for another mutiny, as it were. And in these verses we're going to look at, Paul addresses some of the accusations in order to put an end to them in the hearts and minds of these people. So let's look at the text, starting with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. He writes, It is a reason for pride and exaltation to which our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world generally and especially towards you, With devout and pure motives and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, the unmerited favor and mercy, merciful kindness by which God, exerting his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ and keeps, strengthens, and increases them in Christian virtues. Now Paul is contrasting the devout pure motives and godly sincerity with fleshly wisdom. And in that, we kind of get a glimpse of the tenor of the accusations that these dissenters and false apostles were throwing at him. Now, here's the thing. There are really only two sources that know the truth behind your conduct. That is your conscience and the Spirit of God or God himself. Those are really the only two that know. Everybody else can be fooled or deceived. And Paul calls both of them to testify. Paul is saying that in all things concerning you, the fellowship at Corinth, we were and are transparent and pure. Let me ask you a question. How often could you make that claim? This is a supernatural boast. And the truth is that it could only be the product of a new creation heart that is yielded to the Spirit of God. Now, I'm going to go a little bit further with that and tell you that every one of you have that heart. Within you, there beats a heart of the new creation that is pure and sincere. It's not only godly in its motives, but it is motivated by God. Now, that may be hard for you to believe but that is exactly what the word of god tells us that's what your experience has told you because you've always had to deal with this duality this sense of when you did wrong is that me or why am i doing this if i hate it so much kind of the roman 7 argument right the reality is that you are who you are in christ that is who you are and you do have a new heart And so what Paul wants us to do, what Paul, what the Holy Spirit through Paul is trying to invite these young Christians to do is to begin to live in the truth of what they have for a heart. Rather than live in the lie and baggage of the old man, the flesh. Well, he speaks of his heart and he says, we were pure in our motives. We were transparent before you. The Greek word that... uh, Paul uses there for purity is used to describe something that can literally best bear the test of held up to the light to the sunlight you wouldn't see any falseness about it and Paul recognizes that it is by the grace of God and for the demonstration of that grace that he can make this claim now here's the thing Paul is not just using a tactic or some spiritually sounding words. He's not describing a methodology that he used in winning the hearts of the Corinthians. He is describing his life. This is how we live. Wow. Can we do that? Look at verse 13. For we write you nothing else but simply what you can read and understand. There is no double meaning to what we say, and I hope that you will become thoroughly acquainted with the divine things, and know and understand them accurately and well to the end, just as you have already partially known and understood and acknowledged us and recognized that you can honestly be proud of us, even as we can be proud of you on the day of our Lord Jesus. Now, Paul is telling them, what you read and what you have seen of me is the truth of me. Now, we talked about this Bible study, but what what is it that God says a hypocrite is? God says a hypocrite is you acting out of the baggage of your flesh rather than acting out of the truth of your new nature. Did you know that your heart, who you are in Christ... The new creation that he made you to be is perfectly and wonderfully and naturally suited to come and worship, but your flesh is not. Did you know that you are perfectly and wonderfully and naturally suited to love, but your flesh is not? You are perfectly and wonderfully and naturally suited for all the gifts of the Spirit of God. Not that they would visit themselves upon you, but that you would literally be able to express them because they are now part and parcel of who you are. Did you know that? And what we should be teaching as ministers, what the church of God should be reinforcing every single time is that this is who you are so therefore live the truth of who you are that's your heart paul says what you read that i that the spirit of god bid me write and what you've seen in my actions is the truth it's not me putting on an act it's not me behaving religiously You see, Paul knew what that was about. He'd been a Pharisee of Pharisees. He had put on the religious robes. He had acted out the religious way. He had performed all the works of the law. He knew what it is to put it forward. What is different about him now is that he is putting forward Christ. The very character of Christ is now a part of his being. So it is natural for him to love. It is natural for him to walk in truth. It is literally his heart's desire to know and to grow in truth. The enemy would argue and say, No, you can only know so much and I'm getting tired of hearing it. Oh, we're not knowing. We are intimately connected to knowing. Paul is telling him there's no difference between my message and my heart. No difference. And I can say that without even a boast. Because I know the truth of my heart. I may not eloquently explain it. And I may not be consistent in putting it out there. But I can tell you that there is no deviance between what my heart is and the gospel. None. I have, get this, I have the heart of Paul. But more than that, I have the heart of Christ. And you want to hear something that will really shock you? So do you. So do you. Now, Paul had lived and ministered among them for eighteen months, so if there had been any duality, uh, they would have seen it long ago. And Paul is not is speaking of an intimate acquaintance with truth to be. Thoroughly acquainted is more than just knowing about or having an intellectual understanding. It's an intimacy that permeates the way you see yourself and others. It's literally you operating out of the truth of your union. The Greek word there for understanding here means deeply understanding. More than we can receive through the brain. It is a divine revelation. It is the truth of our lives in Christ, whether or not it is the truth of our souls. You see, there are two truths one is the condition of our soul, and the other is the truth of our spirit, which is the heart. okay? Now, you can choose to live to one or the other, but I can tell you if you're getting seasick, if everything's rocking and rolling on you, I know which one you're living to. It's your soul. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, that see, what the soul is made up of is the mind, will, and emotion. So, if the soul's unstable, what would the mind, will, and emotions be? Unstable. Rocked about. Listen. Jesus has come into your heart. He's literally created a heart for you where he reigns. He is reigning as the Prince of Peace. And he comes out of the soul by invitation through his spirit and walks into the middle of that turbulent soul of yours. He comes out of the heart, walks in the middle of that turbulent soul of yours, and he says, peace. And the soul says, why? And he says, look, look, where's your focus? Where's your balance? What is your truth? Are you having trouble finding joy? Are you having trouble finding hope? Do you have more affinity with sorrow than you do with rejoicing? Friend, you're living out of your soul. You're making the condition of your soul your identity. That's wrong. It doesn't suit you. Declare the truth over the soul now. Speak out loud the truth of who you are. Yes, my soul is vexed. Yes, my circumstances are harsh. Yes, the future is uncertain for my body and existence on this earth. But I am a child of God. I live in the hope of His sovereignty. I live in the truth of His love and acceptance. I live in the joy of His presence. I worship Him in the moments of my life. I yield all that I am to Him. And I look upon His face and I say, Be still, my soul. Oh, this is the truth of who I am. They had seen it lived before them, and they had lived it to some degree. And Paul is saying to them, you've seen the ministry of the Spirit through us. You have recognized the rejoicing of his life, the working of his life. You've seen it in us, just as we have seen it in you. And you can rejoice with us when that truth is made plain at his coming. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe truth is elusive? I will tell you that for the world it is. If you don't believe me, just watch some TV and listen to them speak. Truth is elusive because truth is a person. It's not knowledge. But for you, truth is not elusive. It is ever-present with you. Now, because we misinterpret what truth is, and we think truth is understanding, and through understanding we'll achieve some sense of balance and hope, we have totally made the truth man-centered. But I can tell you that truth is a person. And that person may, may or may not choose to explain to you why you should have balance in that situation. He may just look at you and say, I am. Well, oh, Father, I need to know the truth. I am. Oh, Father, I need hope. I am. In fact, Jesus said in John, he said to them, I am the way the truth, and the life. Are we frustrated because we don't know the way? Are we frustrated because we think that we don't have life the way we want it? If you don't know who he is by virtue of yielding to that life in your soul, if you don't proclaim the truth by faith, not by emotion, if you don't proclaim the truth, then the obvious truth identity of who He is will escape you. You won't recognize that He is the way. You won't recognize that He is the truth. And you certainly won't recognize that He is the life. And you will live in despair. Moving from distraction to destruction. Guys, that's not the Christian life. That is a distortion. That's not what we're called to. Do you believe that you could have victory in this life? Do you believe that you could walk in an intimate communion with him moment by moment? I didn't say feel an intimate communion moment by moment. I said live in the truth that he is here, that he is your life. God has already put the truth in you. So revelation is simply becoming aware of the dynamic of his life in you. And that's why it's so much more than an intellectual understanding or comprehension. Verse 15 and 16, it was with assurance of this that I wanted and planned to visit you, first of all, so that you might have a double favor and token of grace, goodwill. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to come again to you on my return trip from Macedonia and have you send me forward to on my way to Judea. He's got his schedule, had his schedule all worked out, right? Now, these verses almost seem out of place to the casual reader, unless you've read them in the context of Paul's previous letter. And Paul is addressing another accusation here. It was Paul's intention to visit the Corinthians, but the situation at the church had become so bitter that he postponed it rather than visiting there and having to be severe in person. So, I read that. He changed his mind. And I looked at his intention, his intention in coming, and I wondered how often, because I am distracted by the words and the activities of man, that I have set aside the favor and the grace that God desired me to know. Paul's heart was to bless them, but they were preoccupied with fleshy wisdom and division, the fruit of the Spirit was theirs to express, but they traded love for bitterness or bitterness for love and slander for kindness. So Paul determines that he should delay his visit. You know, the thought of bringing them more pain was really grievous to them. To him. That's the heart of a parent, isn't it? You almost avoid some subjects because you just, you just don't want to grieve. You just don't want to hurt. You don't want to be the bad guy. The thought of bringing them more pain was, was grievous to him. And he references this in 2 Corinthians verse 23. So his enemies used the scheduled change as an opportunity to accuse him of being fickle or a sort of man who makes frivolous promises and was not following the wisdom of God. So how can you rely on his teaching? Now this reveals to you how desperate his enemies were to discredit him. Yeah, the accuser is always at work, isn't he? If we take a closer look at what Paul actually wrote to them, we can see the heart, the, his heart, to be yielded to the will, will of God, particularly in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 16, where he writes, If the Lord permits, the work of the accuser will always seek to get you to examine your motives. He'll get you to examine your thoughts. Because he'd rather get you doing that than focusing upon your Savior, your life, Christ. And it's interesting how he works because I've had this pull on me so many times I know it. He'll suggest a thought in first person singular. I'll be in the middle of doing something and he'll say, you know, I'm doing this, so this and such and the other. Immediately he will distort the purpose of me being there. Or somebody else will be doing something for me and he'll suggest, oh, you know, I know they're doing this so that, dot, 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 dot. And then he'll try to get me to own that. That's an accusation. Did you think you came up with those accusations on your own? Is that your heart? I can turn to the enemy and say, you don't know my heart. Yes, it sounded like my voice. Yes, it sounded like something the flesh would strategize. But I know my heart. I know the truth. I am here because the Spirit of God bid me come. I love them because it is my heart to love them. They are, they are loving me because it is the Father's heart in them to love me. I will not attach these accusations. I will not attach and, and literally discredit the work of God by my thoughts. I won't allow it. I'll see God in it. Paul with chains around his hands and feet, chained to a Roman guard, in the midst of all of that, he could say, oh, look at what my enemies planned for me. But who did Paul say put chains on him? God. That's our perspective, people. People. We receive nothing from the hands of men. We receive everything from the hand of God. And a victorious life is the life that declares the truth over his soul.
0: Thank you for joining us for His Life Revealed with Pastor Todd Granger. This program is the radio ministry of His Life Fellowship in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to know more about us, visit us on the web at hislifeministries.org or on Facebook at His Life Fellowship.